Welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. The Cover 2 Resources podcast is an ongoing series in which we interview experts in the fight against opioid addiction. It is made possible through donations and sponsorships from concerned individuals or organizations. If you want to help in the fight against opioid addiction, please consider donating or sponsoring the Cover 2 podcast. Go to cover2.org for more information. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources. Recently, I read an article in the Washington Post titled, what the opioid epidemic looks like on the screen of a brain scan. And that piqued my interest to learn more about this topic. So I invited the author, Dr. Sandra Block, to join me for this interview. Dr. Block is a medical director of the Adult and Pediatric Sleep Center in Buffalo Medical Group in Buffalo, New York. So doctor, welcome. Thank you so much. Okay. So you've been practicing neurology in Buffalo for 20 years. You interpret the results of patient electroencephalograms, better known as EEGs, every single day. So can you tell us what you see when you look at a normal brain? Yes. Um, What you're really looking at overall is just the electricity of the brain. So much like you do an EKG and you get a readout from the electricity of the heart, that's what you're looking at in real time of the brain. And you see different patterns that are well described based on whether you're awake or asleep and, you know, your age group as well. But if you're awake, you tend to see this sort of um, sinusoidal rhythm in the the back of the brain. Uh, And then if you're asleep, you get slowing down and you also get some other particular rhythms such as the sleep spindles that they're called, which are this fast beta rhythm that you see. Uh, you see slower in um, slow-wave sleep, and then you even see different patterns in REM or dreaming sleep. So there's a lot of different patterns you can see, and that's with the normal awake and asleep brain, not a brain that's sick for some reason. So day in and day out, you, as, as part of your profession, you study these EEGs. And so since the opioid epidemic has taken off, You've noticed changes. Tell us about those. Yeah, well, you know, when you're doing EEGs, when you're reading them, you know, weekly or daily, you're you're seeing a lot of normals, and then you also are seeing abnormals, either because there's a seizure focus that you find, um, which is more of an outpatient kind of problem, or when you have a patient who's very sick, and that could be from having a stroke, that could be from... Uh, being in liver failure, all, all sorts of, you know, an, uh, a rampant meningitis or infection or uh, what we call status epilepticus where you're having continual seizures. So those are sort of the more acute things that you're reading and looking at. 
And one of those things that you are looking at, too, is often after uh, perhaps a heart attack where someone has been uh, found um, hours later or uh, something of that nature where the brain has been starved of oxygen and you're really looking at a pattern which is either brain death or close to brain death. And that's something that, um, you know, we're used to seeing, on, yeah, it unfortunately, as, as part of a routine, uh, routine, somewhat routine basis. And it's always sad to see that. But sort of as I said in the article, it's just it's something, you know, as you get older and these things happen and we're, we're machines ultimately and we run out and, and it's something you understand. It's almost something you can you can understand because of that. But what I've been seeing is more and more that when you look at these patterns, they're in these younger birthdays. I mean, someone who's 20 years old and you look at the history that the technician gives you, um, found, uh, you know, a history of multi-substance abuse, found um, unconscious three hours later or uh, different stories which tell you sort of the sad story that they've been, overdosed and this is now their brain functioning which is very poor um, at that point and I guess that was the point that I was making is that you don't expect to see these in young patients and that's what I'm seeing more and more. And you describe those as what you see in the older patients as brain suppression patterns and flat waves and now it's extended to 24 year olds, 19 year olds, 15 year olds you say in the uh, you state in the article. Yeah, it's it's um it's a basic problem that the brain electricity is not working correctly. So instead of having these these rhythms, what I view as sort of beautiful rhythms of of the brain working nicely um, and doing its job, you're you're seeing very flat lines with minimal, if any, brain activity. Is one pattern you may see, and then another pattern is called burst suppression, which is. A, a per- pattern where you get bursts of brain activity that just is inconsequential. It's not really doing anything. It's just trying to, that's just the pattern that it has, and then it fades off into inactivity for a few seconds, and then get this burst again. And it's another pattern that tells you the brain is not functioning and is likely not going to function again. So any idea how long it takes to for those changes in the brain to come about? How much opioid abuse? Yeah, you know, it's not necessarily a function in that case of how long you've been abusing opioids. For that specific case, it's going to be that you've, you've overdosed and you have not been breathing for a while. It's really as simple as that. Um, that that's where you're going to see that. You may see extreme slowing in someone who has overdosed perhaps, and, and um, it's still reachable with Narcan or, or something of that nature that could reverse it, but, it, you know, but has not yet. So you may see extreme slowing with opioid use, um, but in terms of seeing something that's a bad prognostic sign for any kind of recovery, that's usually after an overdose has occurred and is a function of not, not breathing and, you know, basically becoming brain dead as a course of uh, the opioid overdose and and not being able to produce breathing to to continue uh, giving the brain the oxygen that it needs to function. Can the damage done to the brain ever be undone? Well, you know, there's 
different ways of looking at that. If, if you have an opioid overdose where you have starved the brain long enough that you're essentially brain dead, then um, sadly there's not going to be a way to reverse that. If, you know, there's different scenarios. If a child, for instance, um, is drowning and it's very, very cold and their body is hypothermic, and, you know, that may be actually a time where, uh, brain death can can essentially be reversed. There's not a lot of times where that can occur. So really, another question might be some of these other changes that occur in the brain beyond what we're seeing on an EEG, which is really, you know, real-time imaging of, of well, not even imaging, real-time function of the brain, electricity of the brain. Can any of those changes be reversed? And I think the the answer is, uh, probably yes and no on that from the research that I've been doing. Okay. So, so what would be situations where... Do you where... want me to explain that yes and <laughs> yeah, no, I guess? So. Yeah, please. Yeah, so, uh, you know, there's a couple different things. Um, one would be the neural changes, so neural, um, neurochemical changes, and that involves what circuits are being created. So your brain works off of messaging through uh, messenger systems and elect, uh, electricity from chemicals. And you create different circuits, and that's the neuroplasticity of the brain. So you can create a circuit to, lear- to learn something. And, you know, when you, to put it, you know, kind of as a, a little example, is if you're always really used to eating a chocolate chip cookie at 4 p.m., you sort of, you get conditioned to want that chocolate chip cookie at 4 p.m. It's just sort of a little pattern that you've created in your brain and something that you have to sort of learn to break if, if you want to do that. This is, you know, a hundred million times that. It's a, it's a reward system that's so strong and so strongly learned and created that it's really hard to get rid of that. And that's where the addiction comes in. Um, and those are pathways that can be unlearned. I mean, they can go away to to some degree. And that's where the yes comes in. Over time, those pathways and those neurochemical changes, yes, they they go back and they normalize. Uh, The no comes in because, you know, there's questions. There was a study done recently, which I I have up on um, the website when when you put this up, but it's basically was looking at a small group of patients. It was only 10 patients, but it was looking at whether there were any changes in the brain in the MRI, so looking at the actual brain structure. And what they found was patients who were on opioids for back pain, which is what they were being given. There were strong opioids. It was like morphine they were using for the back pain. And there were changes in the brain. There were the amygdala which is one of the reward, big-time reward centers, but also a center of learning and memory, um, became smaller, other areas became larger, and those changes persisted. They went up to like four to six months after being off of opioids. So that's where I wonder, is there a no in there? Is that something that's going to change forever? Are those, you know, things that maybe they'll check it in 10 years and it's normal again? I don't know, but that that to me is a little worrisome. Sure. So short term, four to six months, it it indicates a bad prognosis, but uh, some potential for long-term recovery there, maybe. Right. And And that in terms of prognosis would be just, you know, 
maybe um, desiring the the drugs. You know that that's a different story altogether. And then the question is even, you know, what do those changes mean? That changes in the brain aren't necessarily a bad thing. It's you know it's hard to know, but it does say that there are changes that do occur that are fairly long term, even after stopping the opioids. Okay. So that's different than the brain death kind of thing. But you know, it's just tells you that there's something going on there. Yeah. But I guess that's balanced with the fact that our brains throughout our lives are constantly changing, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're going to have atrophy as you age, meaning your brains get smaller as you get older. Um, And, yeah, and there's, you know, that's on the level where you can actually see it on a uh, MRI or a scan looking at the brain. Then there's the smaller pathway level where we're always creating different pathways and erasing some and gaining some, and that's part of uh, the growth of our brain and our systems. Yeah. So, doctor, why is the risk of brain damage so much greater through substance abuse before the age of 25 while the brain is still developing? Well, I think, you know, the there's not a lot of data in there, um, and I think some of the concept is there's definitely a higher risk of addiction in that age group, and I think part of the concept is uh, dual. One is that you're still, we talked about that neuroplasticity, you know, these these connections are still being wired, and so you're disrupting these connections that are almost raw and malleable in a way, and, and that's going to be perhaps more damaging than it would be in uh, an older brain. And then the other, you know, p- piece of that puzzle is that the prefrontal cortex, which basically is kind of like your super ego. I mean, it's telling you, yeah, don't do that. That's not such a smart idea. Maybe put your seatbelt on, you know, those kind of things. The risk-taking behavior, um, that's not developed yet in, in, a, in a younger, older teenage-type mind and um, takes some years to, to get there. So, Unfortunately, that's paired with, you know, this more increase in risk-taking behavior, increase in um, not, not having the judgment to say, maybe this isn't such a good idea for me to do what my friend is doing right here. Um, that th- Those together are sort of a dangerous combination. So it's clear how EEGs can help diagnose substance use disorder. But uh, could they also be helpful in monitoring someone's recovery? I, I don't know. I would say, you know, I, I don't have any evidence that it could be. There's, there's some, the closest thing I can think of to that would be something like neurofeedback, where um, they do EEGs and try to train people to kind of um, hover at a certain frequency in the EEG. They try to give you feedback so that you can stay, you, you train yourself to, I guess, kind of be with the EEG in a certain level, and then um, that is supposed to help with anxiety and different things. But um, And there's a lot of centers doing that, but I haven't seen any evidence that that works. In fact, there's been some pretty good studies that it probably does not work. So I, I don't know, maybe in the long term there'll be something that um, can help in that regard, but I would say right now, no. Okay. So, in the article, you wrote, Neurologically speaking, opioids are crafty. They turn the brain's own electricity against it, rewiring connections in an endless feedback loop for more drugs. They trick the brain into a death trap, 
as users chase the chemical bliss from the drugs with more drugs. Can you put this in layman's terms? Layman's terms. I, I think the, the idea is to put it in non-layman's terms, terms to start might be helpful, which is to say, you know, there are loops um, involved in rewarding behaviors, which is sort of what I talked about at the beginning, the, the idea of something that eating, for instance, sex, all of these things that are rewarding. There are uh, brain pathways that stimulate that make this rewarding and the major neurochemical involved here is dopamine so you get these pathways um, that stimulate to make you want to get more dopamine and that's where the drugs come in you get this rush of dopamine and you also get this memory formed we don't know where necessarily but a memory formed that's a very strong memory of that initial romantic almost um, involvement with the drug and then what happens is over time, chemically, you actually, those receptors aren't working as well. So you need to get more and more to get that same amount of reward or dopamine. And at the same time, there's another chemical, norepinephrine, which is more of a stimulating chemical. And that can make you a bit more jittery, um, can give you more of a different different things that are uh, more of a negative feeling that you can get with a withdrawal feeling. So while the dopamine is going down, the norepinephrine is going up. So what I'm saying is that you're in this trap now that you need more drug to get the dopamine to feel better and to get the norepinephrine to feel down more. And the more and more that you get this drug, the more you reinforce this pathway. And eventually one time you take too much of this drug and, and you know, you, you overdose. So that's where there's this chase um, that the brain has almost like created this, this loop that's a very dangerous cycle. Does that, does that explain it? Yeah, that does. Uh, as a matter of fact, with the way that you crafted that, uh, the wording of that, you can tell that you're a writer as well. So tell us a little bit about what you've written. Um, well, I've written basically a, a few things. My, my uh, major writing is with um, a Zoe Goldman uh, series, which is a psychological thriller. It involves a psychiatry resident, which you, you may, um, that may not surprise you since we're talking about brains and brain chemistry, and I find that kind of fascinating. Um, and Zoe Goldman has ADHD, so she has her own issues that she's dealing with, her own dopamine issues, as it were. And she uh, takes place in Buffalo, New York, of course, my fair city. And uh, she, she's trying to solve mysteries that involve her patients and trying to help her patients. So that's the main series that I've done. And then I have a, a standalone book called What Happened That Night, which is coming out in June, which is a totally different um, character in a different situation. Very good. Well, Doctor, I want to thank you for joining us today and sharing your insights and all that you've learned over the years as the opioid epidemic has descended upon us. What final thoughts would you like to share with our listeners? You know, I guess what I'd say is that in, in doing research and in and, uh, try, trying, trying to um, school myself more in, in this whole area, is that I really realize this is not just a, 
a problem of will. This is a problem of a, a brain problem. And if we can fix the brain problem, hopefully we can fix this cycle of addiction. But it's, it's not useful to try to just put this in, in the form of, well, if you could just not take it, you know, it would be fine. Because it's, uh, it's an addiction. It's your brain telling you strongly to do something and giving you a strong negative if you don't. So I think looking at it more as a, a brain disorder instead of just a, a disorder of the will is, is really important. Yeah. A disease, a chronic brain disease. Correct. Yeah. Best yeah. way to put it. Yeah. Okay. Once again, thank you, doctor. Thank you. Joining us today to share what the opioid epidemic looks like on a brain scan has been Dr. Sandra Block, the medical director of the Adult and Pediatric Sleep Center in the Buffalo Medical Group in Buffalo, New York. My name is Greg McNeil, the founder of Cover 2 Resources. Thank you for joining us for this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. With your support, the Cover 2 team can continue to research and broadcast these resources to others in need. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.